0: Here we go. Uh, First of all, I just wanted to say actually a couple of things. One, I just handed to you a, uh, a handout that I've updated because some people said to me halfway through the stuff that I was going over wasn't in the handout. It was not in the handout. And so now I've just tried to work it into the handout. So it's all there. Uh, I also changed the overheads a little bit, so we'll go through them. If you want to try to fill this one in, you can. You just need to have a pen, um, and you'll you'll see how it all fits in. So, anyway, as you can see, um, we've talked about this already. I'm just doing this so that you can kind of just fill it in real quick. You got like four words, and uh, just so that your your whole thing is up to date. Okay, so we say it's a portion of God's word. Uh, We are not sure how the law relates to us. We're trying to make a unique connection. We got the broader messianic movement. And the big question is one obligated, the issue of (laughs) mustness. Okay, you only got one on this. You got the word error, the error of dividing the law into parts. So I got to go back. So then we got uh, the error of dividing the law into parts. You got that. And then some have divided the law into parts, but, uh, and they've concluded they're free of the ceremonial, but obligated to obey the moral. We're going to talk about that as we get a little further into things. Some say we can't do it fully, but we can do it in some fashion. That's good. And so we talked about the error of the Ten Commandments, while the 603 are not, or elevating the Ten Commandments over the other. And then uh, the importance of the law. You've got three things here. Apostasy, nation famous. Apo- uh, apostasy is uh, to go astray from the truth. So when the Israelites were worshiping false gods, they fell into a state of apostasy. The word apostasy, when the nation of Israel would go after false gods, they would have entered into a condition we would refer to as a state of apostasy. And then um, we talked a little bit about the relationship of the law to grace. We keep, we're intertwining these ideas. We come back and forth in them. Number one, Israel didn't deserve the law. The law was a gift from God. The law did not annul any features of the Abrahamic covenant. We talked a great deal about, or to a large extent, about the Abrahamic covenant and its significance in broad strokes. Um, and then we did see that in certain contexts, the law is contrasted with God's grace. But it's not a harsh contrast. Now, when looking at John 1.17, I wanted to put it in context So I just was pointing out that in verses 14 through 18, 17 being uh, in the tail end of those verses, but from verses 14 to 18, you have these ascending points that are made about God and ultimately salvation. That first of all, God is invisible. So how do we see him? How does the invisible God make himself known? And one of the ways he made himself known was in the law. So that's a good thing. Uh, about the law. That's why it's wholly just and good. One of the good aspects of the law is it helped us to know God. But the invisible God became known to us through the law, but more uh, pointedly, more tangibly, he made himself known by becoming a human being, taking on human form, being born uh, in Bethlehem of Miriam, And so, therefore, in Yeshua, we see God. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Messiah says. And while one might see God in Yeshua, nevertheless, we must receive him in order to have the benefits of the thing we see. So, God came in this form, in this fashion. God made himself known so as to give us grace. And that grace must be received. And that's something of the tension in the scripture. In that salvation is a gift from God, but we have to receive it nonetheless. For as many as received uh, him, he gave him the power to become children of God. So there's something of of a tension. People are just not automatically saved without receiving him. So now as we look at chapter 1, verse 17, where he says the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua, I was suggesting there's a contrast, but it's not a harsh contrast, at least in my estimation. So we ought not to think that somehow the coming of Messiah or that the law of Moses was somehow contrary to grace and truth. The law is gracious in many respects as an act of God's revelation to us, and it is certainly truthful. The problem Paul sees is not with the law, but with humanity, which is enslaved or in bondage uh, to sin. If there is a problem with the law, it's its lack of empowerment to help us obey it. So in John chapter three, verse 14, we see Moses doing something graceful, gracious and truthful that points to the grace and truth of Messiah and in John 5 we find that Moses is in harmony with Yeshua so we've looked at this so I don't want to take time to go back through this but I want you just to see the words so that we're all caught up gracious truthful in John chapter 6 the man in the wilderness was a gracious gift of God but as Messiah tells us it was not the true bread doesn't mean it wasn't true bread but it wasn't the true bread. it was not the reality of grace itself it was a witness to the reality it was a foretaste of the grace that was yet to be revealed and that grace that was yet to be revealed would be revealed in Messiah's presence who is the bread of life so the meaning of John 1 where it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua. The law was not the reality or the embodiment of grace and truth, though it was gracious to an extent, and it did provide truth. But Yeshua alone is the embodiment of grace and truth. Thus, the law was a witness to it. It was a pointer to it. He was the fulfillment of the law that's why and not its contradiction and that's why he says came not to destroy or abolish the law but to fulfill it so then we looked at Romans 614 where Paul says twice we are not under law but under grace we're trying to talk about what is the relationship of the law to grace there's a contrast but there's not a harsh contrast it's not a harsh contrast because the law is a manifestation of grace, but in a small manner. It is, maybe more apt for us to say, it is a witness to the fuller reality of grace that would be seen in Messiah. So in Romans 6.14, when Paul says we are not under grace, uh, I mean, we are under grace, but we're not under law, we're trying to find out what does it mean to be under grace? What does it mean to be under law? In Romans 6, 14, and 15, that's the only place we have the phrase under grace. So we can't go anywhere else to give us some help to try to understand its meaning. But the phrase under law is found five or six times in other places in Scripture, which can give us an insight into what is meant by under law. And by having an insight into what it means to be under law, we would have a better idea of what it means to be under grace. So we looked at Romans chapter 2, verse 12. And so let's just take a look there. Romans 2, 12, uh, Paul writes, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, first of all, he makes a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. It is not the Gentiles who are under law. But it's the Jewish people who are. So that tells us at least one thing at the front end, and that is under law has something to do with the Mosaic law and its rulership over the Jewish people. Because he says the Gentiles are not in this situation. Gentiles aren't under the law, but the Jewish people are. Well, he uses the present tense. Yes, because as Paul is going to say... If we, um, in the book of Galatians, if we attempt to do any part of the law, he says we are indebted to all the law. So in one sense, we could say the Jewish people who do not believe in Messiah are under law in that they are under its condemnation because they can't obey it. They can't live up to it. And they have yet to utilize it for its purpose for which it was given, which we're going to see. And the purpose for which it was given, there are a number of purposes, but one is to serve as a school teacher, book of Galatians, to lead us to Messiah. So to the degree to which it has not led them to Messiah, they're still under it. And Paul would tell us that those under law, and this is what he says here in Romans 2, is that they will be judged by the law. It is those Jewish believers that come to faith in Messiah are under grace, and so therefore the law will not serve to judge them. Okay, But the point is Gentiles were and are never under law. There's no obligation placed upon the Gentile peoples of the world with respect to the Mosaic law. It wasn't given to them. It was given to Israel. And that's what Paul's saying here. All who sin, sin apart from the law, law, and all who perish apart from the law will also sin under the law, will be judged by the law. And so what Paul is doing in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to show that all people stand guilty before God. The Gentiles, because they do not live up to their conscience, and the Jews, because they don't live up to the law. All will be found sinful, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul, in chapter, um, in, cha- in chapter, what is it? In chapter three, is going to just rattle off scripture after scripture, uh, almost in a proof texting sort of manner, to demonstrate this is what the scriptures have said. So he says, "What shall we conclude then? Are we the Jews?" He says, "We plural," is talking about the Jews. Are we better than the Gentiles? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So there's that phrase under again. That's what we're trying to figure out. When the scripture says we're under grace and we're not under law, what does he mean to say when he uses the word under? What does it convey? Well, in Romans chapter 3, he says... Um, we've all made the charge we've drawn the conclusion in other words that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin so to be under sin has something to do with being obligated, indebted um, bonded, uh, bound in bondage slavery to the sense of being under appears, at least in these contexts, to have a negative sort of connotation. So, uh, and then he he uses some scripture to demonstrate his point. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. This is all in chapter 3 of Romans. There is no one who does good, not even one. And he goes on to continue uh, this barrage of scripture that shows how sin permeates humanity. And then he says in verse 19, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So Paul's pointing out that the law was given to the Jews. And what it says, because he's concluding his section, chapter 3, chapter 1 and 2, the Gentiles are under sin. Chapter 2, And part of three, the Jews are under sin. So now he's concluding his argument that the Jews also are sinners because they don't obey the law. And so when he comes to the end of this section, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This idea of every mouth being silenced is the imagery that best comes to my mind is sort of when you go into a courtroom and everyone is seated, and the jury uh, isn't yet in, and uh, because they're going to make a... uh, or maybe the jury is in, and then the judge walks in. Prior to the judge walking in, everybody is talking, just saying, you know, talking to one another. Then when the judge walks in, silence. And then they say, all stand, and the judge makes his determination. When Paul talks about, so all the world would be silent... The idea is like we go through our life and we're sort of noisy, what we do and our actions. But then when Judgment Day comes, we're all, we're all you know, the judges just walked into the room to sit behind the uh, desk. Everyone is silenced. And what Paul is saying is that we'll be silenced because of God's presence and we'll f- be found guilty Of not having lived up to either our conscience if we're Gentiles. But in this case under the law as Jews to whom the law was given. So what we're learning and what Paul is going to say is the law was not meant to be a remedy for sin. It has other purposes. That is not one of its purposes. The law serves as our judge. It's a revealer of our sin. Not a remedy for our sin. Okay so. Romans 2.12, we find out Gentiles are not under the law. So this phrase under law has a unique relevance to the Jewish people. In this context, in chapter 2, verse 12 of Romans, the law here means judgment. When we stand under the law, we're actually going to be judged by the law. And this is what he says. Now, our text says by, but the Greek word is really dia, through the law. So the law, in one sense, uh, when we talk about we'll be judged by the law, the reality is we're judged by God. The law is not a person. uh, It's a code that God has given. And God will use this code as a means to demonstrate his people are sinners because they've not lived up to it. So in this context, the law is is sort of the mechanism for judgment. And that's what I mean when I say the law here means judgment. It further means condemnation for those who do not obey it. Because he says we'll be judged by the law. And then he tells us there's none righteous. So what is Paul telling us? There's no one who could stand before God, be judged through the law, and to be found righteous. That's why we need Messiah, ultimately. He becomes our righteousness. It is because of what he has done that we can stand before God, not anything we have done. That's very hard for us to really wrap our hands around. But the fact of the matter is, is that his fulfillment of the law is what enables us to stand before God, no longer judged by the law. Because his fulfilling of the law and his then imparting of his righteousness to us has enables God to see us through his obedience of the law and his carrying of our sin. So people will be condemned not because they have the law or not, but because they have sinned. The law serves as a mechanism by which we are judged. But the reason why we stand guilty is because of our sin. So now turn to Romans chapter 3. This is still this section on our sinfulness. Paul says, Now we know, after he's given this list of passages that show we are all sinners. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the passages he's quoting to show that the Hebrew scriptures agree or support his point that we're all sinners and we stand guilty before God. And therefore, actions on our part cannot enable us to stand guiltless before God. Because The Gentiles will never consistently, completely, fully live in accordance to their conscience. And because the Jewish people who have the law spelled out for them will never be able to fully or completely, 100% obey it. So the the scripture itself has already taught us that. So now in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, Paul is anticipating an objection from a Jewish opponent. And the objection he's expecting is, then why does God give the law? If the Jews are judged guilty because they cannot obey it, why does he give it? And what he states in verses 10 to 18 does not apply to the Jew per se. He's already said, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He says, not at all. We've already made the charge. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And so he's demonstrating all are under sin. So Paul responds that what the law says, it says to those who are subject to it. That's what he means by being under the law. Remember, that's what we're trying to figure out. What does it mean to be under law? What does it mean to be under grace? We don't have any other place to go for under grace, but we do have some places to see under law. Is there some kind of consistency? That's what we're trying to figure out. So Paul is telling us what the law says. It says to those who are subject to it or under it. So in verse 20, he says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So he's expecting an objection. If God has given the law to the Jewish people, then it must be something they can obey. But you're saying it's something they cannot obey. So then what was the purpose in giving the law anyway? If Gentiles don't have the law and are found guilty, and Jews who have the law are found guilty because they can't obey it, why give it to them? So Paul is just recounting. He says, now look, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So what it says is particularly pertinent for the Jewish people. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't have application to the rest of the world. The Jewish people serve almost like a microcosm of the entire world. They're almost like an example. But nevertheless, it says to those who are under the law. So what does it say? It's telling us that no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So what is the purpose of the law? He tells us in verse 20, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, one of the purposes of the law, Paul is telling us, is it gives us knowledge about sin. It does not remedy the sin problem, but it gives us knowledge about sin. So, verse 20, one of the purposes of the law is to make one conscious of sin. To enable the, the Jewish people that they're not left to the subjectivism of their conscience. Because as we all know, many times our consciences don't work right. And some things we think are okay are really not. Or over time, our consciences become seared. So the disadvantage of the conscience is that the conscience... Doesn't, stand, doesn't over time necessarily stand objectively outside of ourselves. It's within ourselves. So unfortunately, it's not a perfect system. But it's enough to render the Gentiles guilty. But there are other things they're guilty for that their consciences may not register in their minds as telling them, you shouldn't do this. What the law does, it gives an objective standard. Now, we're not left to our consciences. We're not left to our own subjective feelings, imaginations, senses, whatever you want, intuition. We now have something that tells us this is the way it is. No matter how you feel about it, this is not what God wants you to do. Now, it doesn't mean that the Gentiles ought to do the same things because the law wasn't given to them. It's given to the Jews. But the Jews now have a major advantage. They have exactly what God wants them or doesn't want them to do. And despite that advantage, they're found to be violators of the law. So the objection is, why does God give the law if it can't be obeyed? And Paul is telling us, because through the law, we become more knowledgeable about our sin. So it's one of its purposes is to make clear to us what is a violation of God's standards. So you might say, listen, eating this animal or that animal because he tells them what animals not to eat. Well, in the sphere of things, both animals are created by God. Both animals are very good with regard to God's creation. But God is telling those who are under the law, I don't want you eating this. Now, they may say, but what's the difference if I eat that or that? You know, what inherently is different about it? Well, there's nothing inherently different about these two foods necessarily, these two animals. But God is determining to make a distinction among those who are under the law. And whatever his purpose is in that, he may not spell out. But the moment he spells out, I don't want you eating this, it would be a violation of God's standard to eat what he tells us not to. And therefore, it is an objective standard of right and wrong. And therefore, it spells out sin for us. Again, I come back to the Garden of Eden. There was nothing inherently wrong with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was set up as a standard to challenge their loyalty, as it were. And so Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from this tree. Not because this tree was poisonous. Obviously, they ate from it and didn't die. Not because it didn't taste good. Not because it didn't look good. Not because it wasn't as, as nice as anything else God had created. Simply that God set a standard in the garden. To eat of that fruit was to violate his standard. He doesn't tell us why he set that tree uh, to be that Fruit not to be eaten from. He doesn't give any explanation. I don't want you to eat from that tree because. He just tells them. I don't want you to eat from this tree. And they would not have seen this tree as a bad tree. Simply. God wants us not to eat from this. Nothing inherent about the tree that's wrong. What ultimately happens is. They choose to violate God's standard. And therefore they then sin. The law is like that for Israel. It doesn't mean that this animal is a bad animal and this one's a better animal. But that this is the standard God has set. And so Israel is expected to live up to this standard which is objective. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to reason concerning it. They just have to do as God has said. But they violated. And so now he's going to answer the question later in the book of Romans, why they violate it. But the first question that he's anticipating is, why the law? And now he tells us, it's not to remedy sin. It was not to keep Israel from sinning. It was meant to reveal the nature of sin because they wouldn't be able to obey it. Okay, so that's the first point. Now, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians. So, under law has something to do with being subjected to the law and responsible for it. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, here's another interesting passage. In uh, chapter chapter 9, verse 20. But we'll look at, at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So Paul's motivation here is to bring salvation to people, right? He wants to win them to the Lord. That's his, uh, in this context, that's his primary goal. You know, I want people to enter the kingdom of God and I want them to know Messiah. So he says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, there's our phrase again. We're trying to get a grapple on what it means to be under grace, under law. So to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. And it's so funny, an expression, right? He just said that I became like a Jew to win the Jews. I became... Like those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Messiah's law, so as to win those not having the law. So, okay, so let's just try to break this down before you see what I put up here Let's just talk about this a little bit. Uh, Let's take some simple things here. What does he mean to say, what does he mean when he speaks of those under the law in verse 20? Who's he talking about? Jews, right? Those are the ones that are those who are under the law. In verse 21, those not having the law became like one not having the law. So who's he talking about there? Gentiles. Gentiles. Okay. Now let's go back to verse 20. He said that I am free, verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Yeah, so when he speaks of freedom, this is a big theme for Paul. You know, this notion of being free in what respect? In the book of Galatians, he's talking about being free from the law. He's going to talk about being free from sin. We're dead to sin. Therefore, we are free from it. We're no longer in bondage to it. We're free. I think, you know, you can talk, you say free, belong to any group. We're free in another sense in that we're free of having to live up to what others might expect us to look like. Some might have said to Paul, wait a minute, you can't be like the Gentiles. He said, I'm free. I can be like the Gentiles. Others might say, well, wait a minute, you can't be doing all the things you did as a Pharisee of Pharisee, Hebrews of Hebrews." He said, but I am free, you know, and that's touching the law, I'm blameless. So he can move without any sense of encumbrances. This is really important for the Messianic movement because if we want to raise the question, what does it mean to be a Jewish believer in Messiah. You know, we have to consider this point that Paul makes. We are free, you know? We don't have to set a baseline, as it were, or some standard that says, this is how Messianic Jews live. This is how Gentile believers live, you know? That would be like Paul would say, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no distinctions. He's not saying with respect to some things, yes, he's a Jew, he's a Gentile, but to place expectations on one group of people versus another is something Paul would say that's crazy, because there's no distinctions like that. You know, uh, there are distinctions with regard to the roles, the functions, the uh, how one might serve, but with regard to our who we are as individuals. There is no difference in Messiah. So we're really free. And uh, as Jewish believers, you know, if we were in Israel, I think as Jewish believers, if we were in Israel, we would sense this sense of freedom in Messiah more readily. Because we wouldn't have to try to demonstrate we're Jewish believers. Because we'd be speaking Hebrew, that's what Jews speak. Generally, if they're not speaking the native land, they happen to be scattered in. We would be worshiping on Saturday because that's the normal time Jewish society in Israel worships. I mean, we could worship on another day if we so chose. But society revolves for the Jewish community revolves around the Sabbath, whether you're religious or not. You know, it doesn't matter. Um like I was t- telling you, my son is, was tried out for the Israeli national lacrosse team, and a message came through the wires that on Shabbat the Israeli team is not going to play any games. Well, there's not one person on that team that's orthodox. Maybe there's one. You know, why are they doing it? Because from a secular perspective, not a religious perspective, the seventh day of the week, Shabbat, is a Jewish sort of thing, you know? I say sort of because from the orthodox point of view, it's a Jewish religious thing. But from the secular Jewish community in Israel, it's just our thing, you know? It's not religious at all to them. But in the United States, we don't revolve around Jewish things. So we have to determine them. In Israel, for example, I can't say for sure, Aton can tell us, But let's take Purim. Purim started Saturday night, I guess, in Israel. I guess Saturday night, so many hours before us. So the stores close. I mean, or maybe they open, but it's party time. And there's all kinds of Mardi Gras kind of stuff going on in the streets of various towns and villages and so on and so forth. All throughout Israel. As a national celebration. We don't do that in America. You know, you got to go to the synagogue where they're having a a carnival on their property, or we do something in our local, local uh, uh, synagogue or whatever it is. But in Israel, it's a nationwide thing. So in Israel, Messianic Jews would feel more free because they wouldn't be thinking about having to behave Jewishly. They just would by nature. Does that make sense? We struggle with this thing of freedom because now we want to say to the Jewish community, I'm a Jewish believer. Oh, really? You worship on Sunday? Jews don't do that. But in Israel, that wouldn't be a question because we'd be celebrating on Saturday, whether we felt the significance of Shabbat or because it just happens to be our cultural bias. Like if you take people in the church, some people in the church see Sunday. I don't think it's right, but they see Sunday as the New Testament Sabbath. So for them who see it as the New Testament Sabbath, no, 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 that's when we should, when we ought to be worshiping. There are other churches in the United States that don't see it that way. And so they say, Sunday just is the day we, most churches gather. But in Israel, you would see Messianic congregations gathering on Saturday, not because we feel we have to, we ought to, like the Christian in the United States who believes Sunday is the new Sabbath, We would just be doing it like churches that meet on Sunday because it's the typical thing. And so we wouldn't be wrestling with this. But in the United States, we're a minority. And among Jewish believers, we're even a greater minority. So we feel a little out of sorts. And we raise the question, how do we nurture the Messianic believers? In Israel, we would just be talking about how do we disciple one? How do we become disciple? We wouldn't be so, um, so focused on it, I don't think. And I think that's Paul's point here. He says, though I am free, and I can live any way I choose before God. Now, any way has to be clarified, and Paul will. We're just talking about what it means to be free. It means that the sky's really the limit before God. Um, you know barring sinful things. But we're going to talk about that in a moment. Okay. There were some hands. Paul. Where does love come the law the no no he says this. But you you, my brothers. And here it is again. Just so you know we're talking. He says in in Romans uh, 9.19. Uh, excuse me. In Romans 3 right. Where we just were. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.20. He says, though I am free. Then if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Messiah has set us free. Then he says in chapter 5, verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So that's the other part of it. So when I say we're free to do what we would like, I don't mean we're free to do sin, because he says here, Don't use your freedom to indulge. Rather, here's your point, Paul. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So, uh, indeed, love is critical to, at least here in Galatians, But it's critical to Paul's understanding of what it means to be free. So, back to Corinthians. He is free in his exercise of love for everyone so that he would see that they were saved. In other words, what is motivating uh, him to want others saved? His love for the lost. And that love in freedom or I should say his freedom enables him to exercise his love both to win Jews and Gentiles and to uh, become a Jew or become a Gentile whichever is needed because it's a love for his neighbor. So that's a good point that you, you raised that. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's move forward again. So we're talking about a couple of things here. We know that uh, those under the law of the Jews, those not having the law of the Gentiles. We have a sense of what it means to be free, this uh, chameleon-like thing where you can move in and out of various spheres. Uh, but then Paul says this, Though I myself am not under the law, and then he says, in verse 21, Though I am not free from God's law. So what is he conveying in those pre- parenthetical phrases. You know, like so he said in verse 20, to the Jews I became like a Jew, I became under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To those not having the law, to the Gentiles, I became like the Gentile, though I am not free from God's law. So what is Paul sort of telling us here? He does have certain scruples and he does have certain parameters within which he's working. So uh, what are they? Now I want to get some, some other people who haven't talked. Look, i can call on you one of these days. anyway. Serge. The now I'm talking about the gospel. We're looking at Paul saying in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, though I'm free, I'm not a slave to any man, I do make myself a slave to everyone for the purpose of bringing the gospel to them. So he says to the Jew, I'll become like a Jew, but, and this is what I want, I'm looking to understand. Though I myself am not under the law. So what does he mean by that parenthetical phrase? Though I am not under the law. What does he mean? Okay, so what Paul is saying here is, look, I become as a Jew and do all the things the Jewish community, Jewish, that community might do, but I'm not doing it because I have to. So because, right, and so I, okay, so now, he's doing, we know that's the motive. And so his phrase here, though I'm not under the law, means that he's saying I'm doing all these Jewish things and I'm submitting to all these traditions and even these uh, aspects of the Mosaic law, but by doing them, I'm not under the law. I'm doing it willfully out of my freedom by means of the leading of the Spirit for the motive of leading others to Messiah not to gain any kind of uh, acclaim or acceptance from God. Okay, so let's move on. So now with regard to the Gentiles, he says... And I can become like a Gentile, but not as though I am without law. So what does he mean here? If in the other case he means I can go into the synagogue, I can go into the Jewish world, the Jewish community, and be just like them, observing all of the legal aspects that they might observe, but I don't do that out of obligation to the law or compulsion to the law, but I do it for this. What does he mean when he says, but I became as a Gentile to win the Gentiles, but not as though without law? Lawless. Okay. So let's put it in Paul's context. In the first century, right, so let's put it in the context of the first century. If he was reaching out to some Gentiles, what might those Gentiles look like, say, in the city of Ephesus? Yeah, they're partying, right? And one of the places they're partying is where? In the temples. And in the temples, one of the things that goes on is temple prostitution. So what does Paul say? He's willing to go into those temples. He's willing to identify with the Gentile peoples, but he's not going to go so far as to be engaged with the sinful activities that they might be doing. So it's not as if he's without laws. So we're trying to understand Paul. He's saying on the one hand, I'll reach out to the Jewish people. I'll be just like them under the law, but I'm not, I am free of the law. I'm not doing it because of that. I'm doing it to win them. Similarly, I'll go among the Gentiles. I'll hang where they are because i got to go talk to them too. And they're in this temple. So they're outside the temples or wherever they happen to be. But wherever they are, I'm not going to engage in their sinful activities. So it's not as if I do this without any scruples. So his freedom, now we're coming back to verse 19. What does it mean to be free? It doesn't mean to be without, without scruples. Without standards, we might say, uh, antinomian, I can do anything. Now, the reason I'm taking time here is because earlier in some of the conversations, the banterings that went on, if you remember, when I was being challenged about, you mean we, don't, we, we uh, can pick and choose whatever we want to do in the law? We can live any way we want? No, I wasn't saying that. But this is a complicated issue. And you can't answer the issues in sound bites. But it's very easy to attack positions with sound bites. So I'm taking the time here to show our freedom enables us to live out the law in whatever degree we might choose. But in doing so, like Paul says, it's not because we are obligated to, or we must do this, or somehow we're we're not looked positively on by God if we don't do it. That we're somehow disobeying him. Paul did those things for the motive of winning others. On the other hand, when he reached out to Gentiles, and this was brought up, and if he went into those temples, we don't know if he did or not, but if he did, he certainly would not have engaged in the sinful activities they were engaged in, which is what Yeshua does. More often than not, where is he? He's not in the temple. Certainly weekly, he's in the synagogue. I understand that. But more often than not, he's with the publicans, sinners, tax collectors, adulterers. Did it mean that he engaged in their sinful activity because he was with them? No, it doesn't mean that. But how did people see him? They said that he was a wine-bibber and a glutton. Their perception of him was he was a sinner. Why? Because he was hanging out with them. That oftentimes is the accusations people get who are clean, but have to rub shoulders in tough places because that's God's calling on their lives. On the other hand, a guy like John, who was uh, you know an ascetic, he was in the wilderness. He was like Elijah. It's uh, they said that he was like weird you know, because he wasn't interacting normally with the general public. So Messiah said, gee, when we played a funeral dirge to you, you would not mourn. When we played a party song, a march, you would not dance. So, you know, Yeshua comes dancing and they criticize him. John comes sort of in a prophetic, thus saith the Lord posture, and they Ride them off as a weirdo in the wilderness. So Paul is saying, you and I are free to move throughout these spheres. If we choose to move within the Jewish sphere, we ought to do so without the sense that we're under the law. On the other hand, if we choose to move within the Gentile sphere, we should do so without engaging in their sinful activities. So I'll never forget as a young believer, you know, I was when I was like 17, 18 years old, I was in a, a, a Christian rock band at the time. And it was new back then. You didn't have a lot of stuff that you had now. And we were playing all over the place. And so in the course of our playing, because um, we used to play in all kinds of places, parks, et cetera, and some people saw us and somehow... There was a group of guys that were from a bar. They were out in a party, you know, out in the park, and we're playing and we're sharing our faith. And they were kind of impressed with the music and what was what we were what we were doing. And they said, uh, and they started getting in conversation. And a number of us in this church were really into a lot of sports and stuff because I don't know why it was, but the pastor, and he's still there after all these years. He was about four years older than me was, uh, just had a lot of connections with the Yankees and stuff. So, like, uh, um, what's his name, from the, from, uh, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, third baseman, Hall of Famer all time. When he was in New York playing the Yankees, he always used to come to uh, the church and share his testimony. Uh, I forget his name. And there's still guys that, co- that come. Um, so, I don't know how it was, but this group of guys that hung out in some bar, had a softball team, and they got in conversation with us, and they said, "Hey, you guys play any ball or whatever you know and so we say hey, we got a team. So our team entered this bar league, and we were playing like kelsey 's and you know and who whatever all these different names and But the interesting thing was we had a great team, and we played pretty well. I still got my shirt we were called Shiloh and um, and what was funny was a number of these guys, after the, after the, you know, they'd see us pray. And then after, they'd invite us over if they had a barbecue or they'd invite us to their bar. And we would go, you know. And so all of us were drinking Cokes or whatever it is. And those guys would drink a beer. And we were sharing our faith. They'd come to the church. And a number of them would get saved. And then they joined our softball team. And, like, we were just, you know, destroying everybody. Because we had all these players coming from all over. But what was interesting was how we could move in that sphere, and even though we didn't engage in the same things with them, people might say, hey, look at that team, all these, all these guys that hang out at you know, Maranatha, and uh, they're going into a bar, man. What are they doing? But we weren't doing anything, except we were just you know, in there sharing our faith and developing relations. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. Some people would find that really hard to do. And it wasn't like we did it one-on-one. Our whole team is there. You know, so it's a little different. We were there watching each other's back, keeping each other accountable. Um, But I think that's sort of the kind of thing I'm feeling here, you know. So, okay, so let me show you what I've got up here because I don't even know what I have. Paul makes three statements about his relationship to the law. First, he says, I'm not under law. So we saw that. He did not uh, see himself as obligated to have to live in light of the Mosaic law as a code. He could turn it off and be among the Gentiles. He could turn it on and he could fulfill the vows and all the things we see him do at the end of the book of Acts, which was natural for him because he's a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. On the other hand, a Gentile can naturally be in their sphere, in their world, mingling with their people, but they can turn on the Jewish thing and be a part of, of a ministry that seeks to reach out to the Jewish people. You know, it can work in both directions. So Paul realizes, uh, because the law is specifically given to the Jews, given to him, but now he realizes the Messiah, I'm not under it anymore. Remember, we're trying to figure out what it means to be under law, under grace. He's not subject to it. He's not obligated to it. He's not uh, a sort of controlled, that's the right word, I don't know if that's a good word, by it. On the other hand, he says, I'm not without the law of God. Which means to say that it doesn't mean he's without scruples. He can't just do anything because he has to move within the sphere of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is not going to lead him to part- be a partaker of sin. So if he moves in the circles of the Jewish world, he's got to be careful about legalism if it's a very orthodox sort of expression. If he moves within the Gentile world, he's got to be concerned about the paganism. So those are things he's not free to participate in. But then he says, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Messiah's law. I think it's very interesting. He does not say, but I am under the Mosaic law. See, it's, the new covenant is a new covenant. And I think this is what is a, sort of a, another word, another phrase for the new covenant. The new covenant is the law of Messiah. The new covenant, and by law of Messiah, we mean the empowerment of the Spirit of God to live as the Spirit leads us. Now, he's not going to lead us into sin. And that's back to Paul, which is what Galatians said, right? The law is summed up in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, but Galatians, that's what Paul says. And then he says, love, or is it James? That's where I get these two confused sometimes. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's what, that's what I think Yeshua is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It cannot just be a surface rope fulfillment of the external aspects of the law. It must reach deep inside the inner core of our being. And the only way it can do that is if the righteousness of Messiah is alive in us. And then is manifesting itself through the work of the Spirit of God. And that's what I think Paul is talking about when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. It is the law of Messiah being uh, activated in our life and in our conduct. And so what kind of a person is responsive to the law of Messiah? It's a person who is manifesting love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And all those characteristics. Yeah, and it's a genuine empowerment because we can only do that because the Spirit of God empowers us. Okay, so uh, first we just want to finish this up. So what can we conclude? What we can conclude is this: believers are not under the law. That is to say, as Barry's are saying, we don't earn our salvation, nor are we bound to live by the law. So when we When Paul quotes the Ten Commandments, he's not telling us to obey the Mosaic Law. He's telling us to obey this commandment he is giving, which is exactly like the commandment that was given in the Mosaic Law, but it's given here. In other words, Paul is not reverting us back to the law. He's only saying this statement in the law is consistent with what I'm telling you now in the New Covenant. So why do we do what he tells us here? Because it's part of the New Covenant law of Messiah and not a restatement of the Mosaic law. And that's what I was trying to illustrate last week, that the Mosaic law can be seen as an era or period of time. And something in the Mosaic law can be transferred into the next covenant or not. It doesn't have to appear. Think of it this way. For some 2,500 years, let's just call it that, for 2,500 years or so, prior to Mount Sinai, the world got along pretty good without the Mosaic Law. Abraham walked before God. Isaac walked with the Lord. Joseph walked with the Lord. Jacob walked with the Lord. Enoch walked with God. Adam and Eve walked with God. Noah walked with God. None of them had the Mosaic law. They didn't need the Mosaic law to walk with God. God gives the Mosaic law at a subsequent point in time. It was added to things that already were. But the things that already were are included in the Mosaic law. Thou shalt not murder. You don't find that commandment prior to the Mosaic law. Though it was wrong... For Cain to murder his brother. Why? Because murder is wrong. Why is it wrong? Because all people are created in the image of God. And therefore, human beings are to be valued. And we're to love one another as creations of God. So we don't need the commandment as such to tell us not to murder. They already knew that. And they already weren't doing it. Or if they did do it, they knew that they were violating a standard. God's standard. Now the law comes in. Something that existed prior to the law is made a legal statement of the law given to Israel only, not to the Gentiles. Didn't mean the Gentiles wouldn't be held accountable for murder. He had Joshua kill, destroy the Canaanites because they were murdering their firstborn children as sacrifices to Moloch. It was wrong and they would bear the consequences for it. And they knew that it was wrong, instinctively, or their conscience, although it may have been seared over time. That's the issue of the conscience. can't be relied upon 100%. But now the Mosaic law says, thou shalt not murder. Now Paul reiterates what the law said. But he's not now saying, oh, we're to obey the law, because he quotes the law. He's only bringing a portion of the law, in this case, one statement of the law, into the New Covenant Uh, the New Covenant reality. And so we obey this this commandment because it's part of the New Covenant, not because it's part of the Mosaic Covenant, even though it existed in the Mosaic Covenant as well. And we didn't look at this passage, but the Mosaic Law, we read in the book of Hebrews, was temporary. It was added until Messiah would come. That word until means there was a termination point for it. So even though some things, not all things, but some things with regard to the Mosaic Law may be restated in the New Covenant, that's not a restatement authorizing the Mosaic Law during the New Covenant. It's its own statement. In contrast, for example, the priesthood during the Mosaic Law was the priesthood of Aaron. It was a Levitical priesthood. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 7 says the law had to be changed regarding this issue. Why? Because the Messiah, his priesthood, would not be Levitical. His priesthood would be of the order of Melchizedek. Why did the Messiah's priesthood have to be of the order of Melchizedek? Because to be the Messiah, he had to be from the tribe of Judah, the family of David." So he can't be both a priest and a king at the same time if his priesthood would be in accordance with the Levitical priesthood of Aaron. So the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 tells us the law had to change. In other words, the law had to end. Because as long as the Mosaic law is operating, the Levitical priesthood is the priesthood that must serve it. But if Messiah is going to be our priest, the Mosaic law has to end so that the Melchizedekian priesthood can be established because that's the priesthood of Messiah. In order for it to end, it must be temporary. If it's temporary, anything in the New Covenant that is like the Mosaic law is only like it but that's because things from the Mosaic law carry over and now take on a new life of their own. They are a new covenant command, not a Mosaic command any longer. And what oftentimes people who read the Bible do that make a mistake, they see something from the Mosaic law and the new covenant and they conclude, ah, I have to obey the law. No, we have to conclude what is a part of the new covenant is unique to the new covenant although it may have existed before in the Mosaic Law. To give an example, and then we'll call it. To give an example, when uh, years ago, someone had shared this, years ago, before there were, all states had, you can make a right turn on a red light. Well, if you had a, let's just say for the sake of argument, if you had a driver's license from Ohio, you know, where... You could probably count how many intersections with lights they have. I don't know. I've never been to Ohio very much. But I'm just saying it's kind of a podunk state, so you don't have a whole lot of traffic lights, right? So in Ohio, the law to uh, turn on a red light, make a right turn on a red light, came very early. Because for them, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of things to worry about. But in New York City, it came very slow. And even in some places, you can't make a right turn on a red, nonetheless, you have to get out of the city to do that in fact, since this is interesting since nine uh, eleven certain sized trucks no longer go into New York. Moving trucks and stuff they don't go into new york can 't go through the tunnels or across the bridge. They have to unload, put them on smaller trucks uh, and then bring them in so it 's a big a whole big issue but anyway, so if you had a driver 's license from Ohio and you went into New York. Didn't matter that in Ohio you can make the turn. In New York, you cannot make the turn. But in some other states, you could make the turn. Not because you had an Ohio license, but because in the state of North Carolina, you were permitted to make the turn. The New Covenant is like that. We have, so, it's sort of like you can make the right turn in Ohio And you can make the right turn in North Carolina, but not because you have an Ohio driver's license, simply because you can drive. So similarly, the command not to kill, or whatever it is, is carried over, but not because you're in the Mosaic Law, you're in North Carolina now, but because the law in North Carolina states the same thing the law in Ohio had to say, but it's its own law. Does that make sense? So we need to see that things may be repeated, not because he's validating the law for today, but because that law is incorporated in the new covenant law of the Messiah. Okay. And the same God. Okay. Uh, So what do we conclude? Believers are not under law. We don't earn it. And believers are not without God's law. But what is, what is meant by God's law? God's law is the law of Messiah. That's what we just saw. So let me go back so you got these fill-ins. Believers are not under law, which means we do not earn our salvation, nor are we bound to live by the law. You can choose to, became like a Jew, but you can choose not to. But if you choose not to, it's not without law. And if you choose to, it's not because of the law. So we don't earn our salvation or have to live in the light of this. But believers are not without God's law. But what is meant by God's law? He doesn't mean the Mosaic law. He means we're not without the law of Messiah. And in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, now we come right back to Paul's point. It's called the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5.14, we're told to love your neighbor. In James, now there's the James passage, it's called the law of liberty. In James chapter 2, it's called the royal law, in which again he says, love your neighbor. And the law of Messiah is what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul talks about in chapter 5 of Galatians, and then the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is the demonstration of... That we are truly being led by the Spirit of God. It isn't knowing you know, where I should go or where I should live or what I should say. It's manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. So if we're being uh, peacemakers, as Messiah says, we would be peacemakers because the Spirit of God is leading us to be such. You know, We can rejoice in all things, even bad things. Because the Lord, uh, the law of Messiah, is reigning in our hearts, which is another way of saying the Spirit of God is leading us. Okay, I think that's it on that. Yeah. So we'll pick it up at 323. Uh